0: Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Bailey Troutman. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. I remember being in the campus gym an undergraduate, looking around and seeing my peers fidgeting with devices secured on their wrists. Some would say things like, oh no, I forgot to start logging my workout, while others would proceed to proudly show off the completed goals they had for the day. People on social media, especially Instagram, post images of the screens of their smartwatches and fitness gadgets that show how many calories they've burned, or hours of activity and movement they've logged for the day, or the rings they've closed for their goals. There was a point where I wished I had a fitness tracker or smartwatch. After all, similar to the logic of picks or it didn't happen, did the workout or daily movements really happen if I didn't log it? Was I missing out by not being able to benchmark my performance from the previous workouts I've had? Was it a huge issue that I couldn't really track my heart rate during fitness? While my iPhone is set up to log my steps taken each day, I still don't have a smartwatch or fitness tracker to this day. The gym equipment can log things if I input my personal data, but my long-term understandings and quantifications of my body are limited. For me, this is okay, but sometimes I still wonder if I should give in and get a tracker. Additionally, I grew up seeing computer monitors get smaller in size, mobile devices that could suddenly browse the internet as little pocket-sized computers, and devices that looked like watches that could also offer a way to read text messages and check emails in addition to fitness tracking. There's virtual reality goggles and lenses. There's devices that can now surveil homes with cameras that offer live streaming on demand. Baby monitors and trackers are sold to parents of children. And this continuous cycle of purportedly new developments Offer more and more ways for consumers to experience the world around us. This show asks old questions about new technologies, and today is no exception. In a time where there is so much new, it never hurts to stop for a moment and reflect. How did we get here? What happens when we experience the world through these technologies? What does it mean when quantifications of the everyday are now helping people make sense of their own existences and bodies within such a virtual, digital world? Today, we're having a conversation about wearable technologies and asking the question, what do wearable technologies afford or allow, and at what cost? I've had the pleasure of collaborating with today's guest, whose work on wearable technologies has resonated deeply with me as I think about these questions and and will hopefully resonate with each listener in some way too. Dr. James Gilmore is an assistant professor of media and technology studies in the Department of Communication at Clemson University. He's the director of a student driven research group called the Collaborative on Communication and Culture. And his research explores how institutions, companies, and governments claim to use technologies of all sorts, including digital platforms, wearable technologies, and other technical infrastructures and systems to produce knowledge claims about the everyday lives of people under their care. Dr. Gilmore has an upcoming special issue of Infrastructural Politics and the Cultural Studies Journal that will be coming out soon. And we're thrilled to have you join us today, Dr. Gilmore. So thank you for being here and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Bailey. I'm really happy to be here talking with you today.
0: So I'll just jump right in. I know that your background has an emphasis in wearable technologies especially the smartwatch. So I was wondering if you could briefly begin by overviewing what makes a wearable a wearable and what brought you on this journey of exploration?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best, most provisional definition of wearables are just quite simply computational devices that can be affixed to human bodies in some form. So if you think about like a technology just as something that allows us to to do something, a machine that lets us do a technique, um, we could think about eyeglasses as a wearable technology. We can think about wristwatches as a wearable technology, hearing aids as a wearable technology. These things have been around for hundreds of years in some cases, right? Um, But the phrase wearable technology, as we hear it and sort of, you know, cultural vocabulary today focuses more on wearable computers. Uh, When the phrase first emerged in kind of the mid to late 1990s, uh, at least in public discourse, I mean, it had been in various areas of research and development for a number of decades prior to this. But, you know, in the mid to late 1990s, it was wearable computing more than wearable technology. The phrase kind of morphs uh, in the 2000s away from wearable computing and towards wearable technology with the popularization of things like Fitbit. So, you know, when I talk about this stuff in public, I always get someone who wants to ask, you know, so so is this a wearable? Is that a wearable? How about this thing over here? Is that also a wearable? So, I'm, I'm glad that you're leading off with that right off the bat. On some level, I I don't really care about uh, you know the semantic divide of what is and isn't. It's more a category you know, that companies have developed for their various products. Right? They call them wearable computers or wearable technologies. And most often, as the name kind of suggests, they are affixed or tethered to our bodies in some ways. Uh, these can be like the, the wristbands of GoPros or Fitbits or Apple watches, the chest straps or helmet straps for GoPros, uh, other sorts of wearable smart tags, uh, things that can be clipped onto chests worn over your neck put onto your shoe Uh, they take many different forms um, but part of what makes them wearable computers or wearable technology is that they are doing computing they are Mm -hmm. collecting and gathering data um, automatically they may be analyzing that data automatically they may be taking advantage of um, bluetooth or other sort of connective features to send that data to your smartphone or to some other sort of cloud storage server uh, to message to other Apple Watch wearers uh, in conjunction with a smartphone. So they do, um, you know, different sorts of computing type things while they are affixed to your body. And a lot of the things that they are recording, gathering, et cetera. Are sort of based on your bodily activity in some way, like counting your steps with Fitbit. Uh, you asked what sort of brought me here. Uh, I, I think it's useful to also say at the start of this conversation, as you sort of alluded to. I, I'm a media and technology studies scholar. I was trained as a humanist. I identify with cultural studies. Um, so you know, I I perform analysis of things. I am not an engineer, I am not a computer scientist, I I do not make claims to actually build these devices. I I examine and think about the work that they do in the world and why might that be impactful? Um, What what does the technology do in conjunction with other humans and other companies and entities? But I am not someone who is actually capable of building them. So I, I sort of came at them in a roundabout way I'm sort of someone who's always been interested in what is popular at a given moment right popular culture is something that really really interests me and in the first part of the 2010s I noticed sort of the emergence of Fitbit um, with a number of people who were into them but most particularly my parents and you know, I, I tell this story a lot when I give public talks and you know it's sort of at the risk of embarrassing my father but you know, he, he is the reason that I started thinking about this stuff. My my dad's a really active person. He's, you know, been a, a casual runner for as long as I can remember. And he bought a Fitbit, I think, in 2011 or 2012. And he got really, really into it. Uh, he had a leaderboard with a number of his friends. He would, you know, live and die based on whether he was at the top of the leaderboard at the end of the day. You know, he would pace around in our basement trying to get those extra steps to go to bed, being at number one. Um, It's not like a, it wasn't like a compulsive thing. It was a game for him, but he was already... A really active, healthy person. He wasn't using Fitbit to try and kind of build a habit or a routine uh, to get into shape or to lose weight or to develop a habit that wasn't there. It was sort of extending an existing habit, giving him a new form of socialization. And it was through that technology that he was building that socialization with his friends through this Fitbit leaderboard. And you know, I remember he got me a Fitbit for Christmas in 2013, and I got onto the leaderboard and competed against my parents, and I think my brother also had one for a time, uh, and for a number of months that was something that we would talk about on the phone, was who was on the leaderboard and, and who was pulling ahead of whom, how far apart we were. Uh, it was creating this whole sort of social practice, and that's what really got me interested in this, this sort of a piece of popular culture to begin with, of... You no, know, this is this is a device that people are building social relationships around, as much as they might be doing anything else. And you know, I've sort of moved away from thinking about what individuals do with wearable technologies and thinking more about what companies and institutions um, do when they implement and imagine what wearable technologies might be capable of doing. Um, but it was sort of this original. Um, kind of moment of watching my dad climb the leaderboards and then him giving me a Fitbit and me toying with it myself. And, you know, this was right when I was starting my doctoral program at Indiana University. And, you know, I decided to write uh, a graduate seminar paper about sort of this social phenomenon of, you know, using uh, wearable fitness trackers to sort of build, extend, um, you know, shift how we were interacting with other people um, and that that led to a, a journal publication in new media and society where i talked about this stuff for the first time and it sort of sent me down this path of thinking about you know what are what are wearable technologies doing as part of cultural practice how are mm-hmm. they interfacing with daily life uh, with the ways that we build habits and routines with the ways that we use kind of quantified data as part of our routine and our understanding of ourselves and our relationships with other people.
0: No, I, I think that's fantastic. First of all, I love the fact that this was something that started almost as this moment of family bonding, and it became this like incredible journey of research. And I mean, I always I always love whenever authors do have that moment where it's just like, oh, this is happening in my personal life and now I'm going to explore it. Um, And I'm struck by how you mentioned bodily activity um, because I think kind of leading into the second question here, I am personally struck by how wearable technologies are often sold as ways to be more discreetly integrated into knowledge about your body. So I think about things like fitness trackers with the Fitbit where it's telling me this is what my heart rate is right now. This is, you know, maybe how many calories I've burned or like all of these other, you know numeric type of basically assessments of my own internal organs almost, which I think is just fascinating. Um, Or really just like what's happening, what's happening around me, maybe like what context things are happening in. So that brings me to the question of what separates wearable technologies maybe from other devices, which I know you've, you've briefly already mentioned. And maybe like what work are they doing that other devices perhaps aren't?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, on its surface, wearables aren't doing a lot of things that aren't already being done by, you know, GPS navigational devices, right? That aren't being done by the smartphones that we carry into our pockets, that, you know, aren't being done by our laptop computers or just a basic pedometer, a kind of non-digital, non-computational pedometer or a non-computational heart rate monitor, right? But I think that it is the fact that we are asked to affix them onto our bodies throughout our days, right? That part of the plea that wearable technologies make implicitly in their advertising, the discourse that circulates around them, the way they're sort of pitched at trade shows and development conferences, is that these are things that you can use as part of your everyday life. Now, one of the earliest sort of public symposia on wearable computing took place at MIT in the 1990s as part of the keynote uh, address for this symposium, and I think it was 1997, you know, the, the pitch was wearable computing can help bring some order to daily life, to bring order to daily life. And I think about that quote a lot because at the time it was, you know, a pitch for this is why we should be researching these things, building these things. And this is why the public should care about them is that they can bring order to life, right? And when we are thinking about kind of the production of, a step count report, a heart rate monitor report that is generating averages about your body, that's ordering what your body is doing in some way, right? Even the production of a day's worth of video through wearing a GoPro to your chest, either as a mountain biker uh, who is trying to share their activity on YouTube to gain influence and sponsorships, or as a police officer who is supposedly wearing that to have more transparency in the community, No, that is ordering what stuff looks like in some way based on where the camera's fastened, what's in the frame, what's out of the frame, how is the camera engaging with space and bodies, et cetera. Um, The difference is that it is affixed, that it is traveling with you, that it is, you know, if you're doing it the way that the producers and implementers and advertisers are suggesting, that it is always on, that it is producing a sort of record of what you have done each day. Um, you know, around the sort of popularization of smartphones, uh, in the or even before smartphones, really just cell phones generally, uh, the great technology studies scholar Sherry Turkle has this essay uh, called "Always On" slash "Always On You." The idea that you know more and more people carry their cell phones in their pockets, in their hands, that we don't want to be without them. For me, wearable technologies up the game. they they are a step further in literalizing always on you, right? Clearly, you can take the Fitbit off, you can take the Apple Watch off, like it's not uh, for the most part, uh, if you have some sort of agency around using the device, and some people don't, like people who have to wear um, bands or tags as part of their job, so they can be monitored in their workplaces. That's not necessarily an instance of agency, but for most consumers who may be purchasing these for leisure, uh, you know, that always on you is an intensification of your relationship with technology. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. a lot about sort of the vocabulary that, that circulates around these things, right? It, it, it's no accident, I think, that the word habit has two different meanings, right? It's not only about our routines, it's also a particular kind of religious garment, right? It's mm-hmm. no accident that the words costume and custom Derive from the same Latin word. Right? The things that we wear are vital parts of our larger cultural practices, how we understand the world, how we make sense of the world. And we can think about how wearable technologies, kind of part of what they offer implicitly, or in some cases explicitly, is if you wear this, will help bring order to your life. This can be a way through which your costume, your habit, can reshape your customs and habits your everyday practices. And that's mm. part of the pitch.
0: Yeah, I'm really struck especially by the quote like it's always on you brings order to daily life. I I think that yeah, and it's also like they're incentivizing that it is always on you because you want to make sure you're capturing every step of your day or you want to make sure, you know, you're constantly mindful of x y z. Uh, quantification, just because you can, you know, get your rings met for the day if you're wearing your smartwatch or any number of other, you know, like you said earlier, like the gamification almost of the everyday, they they incentivize that always on you. Um, so I, I love that you brought that up. You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. James Gilmore about wearable technologies. And that kind of actually brings me, I know this is a little bit of a pivot almost, but thinking more about now the younger generations, especially, um, and beyond some of the devices we've already mentioned, I know that you have had some conversations and presentations about childhood wearable technologies. So we're starting now at infancy, basically, even before that. Um, And I was wondering if you could share a bit more about your research uh, with childhood wearables, and maybe some information about like what listeners uh, could consider if they choose to purchase and use these devices with their families.
1: Yeah, that's a really good and really important question. So um, for for folks who have access to, to academic journals. Uh, some of my research on this has been published in the journal Convergence. Um, it's an article titled Securing the Kids that came out in, in 2020. Uh, and the kind of case study of that article was a wearable device called GeoBit, J-I-O-B-I-T. Uh, what GeoBit offered was what they called a smart tag. Um, this little kind of chip, uh, it's you know about the size of maybe two quarters. Uh, put together, um, and you would affix it to your child. Uh, They recommend kind of on their belt loop or on their shoe, and you could track their location um, through your smartphone that was tethered to this GeoBit. The child couldn't interact with it. It was a closed system, Um, but you could, uh, you know, set up different locations, like you could you know track school or home and then when you know your child left home uh you would get a notification saying you know sammy has left home or sammy has arrived at school the idea here being like you know nobody wants their child to get lost uh you know i'm i'm a parent of two young girls i don't want to lose them right this technology makes a very emotional plea for you know in, in its first advertisement it says something to the effect of you know if you could do anything to present the loss of a child, would you do it? To say, this is a device that can help you, that can solve your anxiety, that can let you monitor a child. Now, what comes with that is a rearticulation of what parenting looks like as we are asked to bring tracking devices and systems into the coordinated relationship between parent and child. It is a surveillance system. That's what it is meant to do. It is meant to track the whereabouts of your child to make sure that they are safe. Um, There are a number of limitations with whether or not that safety and security is possible. The company spells that out very clearly in their terms of service and privacy documents that you you should not invest in this as a security system. It should be treated as a recreational location device Um, that it has significant limitations, but it is still offered as a way for parents to use technology as a technique for securing their children. This matters for how we want to imagine wearable technologies or technologies generally as part of the mediating relationships between parents and children. Now, my kids are still... Toddlers, I don't have to worry about that too much. But, you know, I use a baby monitor when they're sleeping. We have a a video monitor. Um, We don't have one that is connected to the internet. We have a radio frequency monitor and we watch them sleep. Uh, If they're crying, we can look at them and make sure that they're okay, Uh, that they're not in immediate distress, try and give them some time to put themselves back to sleep right? If they do wake up and cry. Um, But I'm still surveilling them with a piece of technology. The the GeoBit functions in sort of the same sort of way. In terms of whether or not families should purchase a wearable tracking device for a child, I don't think that I'm qualified to say. I think part of my job is to research how these systems work, think about what they might be doing, what their limitations are, what their kind of potential politics might be. Uh, But the decision of a parent to bring a device into their relationship with their child is a very kind of um, intimate and personal decision that I don't necessarily feel qualified to make a general piece of advice about. But what I will say is that part of what GeoBit relies on is some outdated legislation called COPPA, which... I hope I don't butcher this, the Child Online Privacy Protection Act, uh, which was first passed, um, oh, geez, now I'm going to blank on the date. I want to say late 90s. It might have been early 2000s. And it's kind of been updated piecemeal along the way, right? But it was very much implemented at a time where most people were getting online through desktop computers, right? We don't really do that anymore, right? I mean, I'm talking to you through... A desktop computer, but by and large, we're getting online through mobile phones. We're getting online through wearables, which are, in some cases, internet connected and transmitting. Right. We need to kind of rethink how child privacy and protection works in this new mobile environment, uh, especially when young children's locations are involved. Right now. I don't want to say that GeoBit is manipulating this system or being unlawful because they aren't. They're abiding by the law as best as I can tell and examining the company's documents. But the law itself is somewhat faulty mm-hmm. because what COPPA says is that you know children under the age of 13 should not be using the internet without a parent's consent. Right? Now, with GeoBit, It's up to the parent to say, I consent for my child to be using this system, but the child ostensibly doesn't have much of a say here. And when you go to set up a GeoBit, which I know because I used one on myself for six weeks while I was researching them, when you set one up, it doesn't ask you to read the terms of service or the privacy policy. It just asks you to click a box that says, uh, I acknowledge that I give the company permission to track my child. And it says, if you want to know more, you can read our terms of service. But as we know from plenty of research and the terms of service documents, people don't read them. And why would they? They're excruciatingly long. They're filled with jargon. They don't make a lot of sense unless you have been trained to unpack them. You know, people who are interested in these documents and all kind of the minutia that they have to say can can go and find my article in Convergence where I get into this in more detail. But basically, you know, if we're going to be offering technologies that we can affix to our children's bodies that we can use to monitor them through smartphone applications, then okay. But let's rethink how we can offer clear terms of service, clear data collection policies right, clear data erasure policies, right, Mm -hmm. to make sure that the data collected about our children uh, or about ourselves even is constantly being erased, right, maybe every 30 days, maybe every two weeks, but this idea of all of this stuff being stored in perpetuity on servers at some undisclosed location, you know, that should trouble us and that should encourage us to think about, you know, is that trade-off worth it for this company to store logs of my child's location and you know the buildings that i have labeled home the buildings that i've labeled school or daycare is that trade-off worth it to me for some parents the answer will be yes for any number of reasons Uh, these technologies in many instances were first developed for parents of autistic children uh, who may have trouble communicating maybe more prone to, to bolting, to running off, so that they could be tracked if they, you know, slipped away. Great and understandable use of these technologies. But when we expand them as sort of this general population catch-all for, oh, you want to make sure your child is safe, come and buy this thing. Right? We should look at what all is involved in that relationship of bringing that device into our lives. Right? Mm. And we should... Do more to demand better terms of service, better and more clear privacy policies, better and more clear data collection policies so that parents can make the right choice for themselves and their children and not begin using a device only to realize months later, oh, they've actually been storing our location this entire time. And I didn't realize that that was going to be happening because the terms of service are not uh, I mean, they they are. They do say that, but again, it's, it's sort of buried, it's hidden behind legal jargon. And unless you're someone who, you know, reads terms of service documents a lot, which I can't imagine it's most people beyond, you know, a, a very select population. And then also researchers like myself, you know, we, we can do more to make these things clearer to
0: others. Mm. No, I love that you have started to highlight this area of policy and the governance and the corporate interest as well, um, because I know that that will be a question we'll hopefully get to in in a bit more detail later. Um, but I also wanted to kind of go back to one of the things you mentioned here, where it's children's bodies now that we're talking about, and I think uh, you know beyond things like Fitbit smartwatch. AirPods, even GoPros, like you mentioned, I'm thinking more about like where are other, you know, areas of our everyday perhaps where we're seeing, especially when we're thinking about children or like families, uh, these wearables that might not seem on the surface to be like very apparent, like, oh, I'm wearing a smartwatch. I know that I'm doing that thing. Um, And so I'm thinking too, just about like where, where exactly might we see wearable technologies popping up beyond you know, I'm wearing a Fitbit today?
1: Yeah, th- thanks for asking this question. This actually gets more at the heart of what the the book that I'm writing about wearable technologies is getting to, which is how different institutions and companies implement them to learn about people, right? So, you know, th- this question of whether or not we personally bring them into our habits and practices is sort of one set of questions, right? The whole other set of questions and the ones that I personally find more interesting right now are when are people asked to put on a wearable and for what purpose, right? So for kids, there's a whole cottage industry of wearable fitness trackers that are sold to high schoolers and even middle schoolers to wear during gym class, right? Some of the, uh, if you have younger listeners to this, uh, podcast or parents who have middle school aged or high school aged kids in gym classes, they may experience these too, right? Um, They are designed to help motivate kids, um, to kind of encourage them to, as you put it earlier in the conversation, close your rings, right? If you, you know, for people who don't wear an Apple watch, they, they have these little activity rings. And if you get close to you know, some amount of calories burned or steps taken. The ring gets closer to filling, and if you, you know, fill the ring all the way in, it gives this nice little animation. It's, you know, it makes you feel good and like, oh, I did, I did something. The watch is giving me a reward. Hooray! Right. So in gym class, this allows physical education instructors to accrue ongoing data reports about what each student is doing, right? much like how you know, we might take attendance reports to make sure that someone showed up. This now provides a log of, you know, what was this student's average step rate for the week, for the month, the term? You know, if we had the expectation that they take 3000 steps over their gym class because we were running today or we were playing an aerobic game basketball today, uh, and this student only has several hundred steps, what does that tell me about what the work the student is not doing? Right? Um, in some instances, they also project, they have the capacity at least to project leaderboards onto the wall of the gymnasium, right? So students can you know strap on their individually assigned wearable. They can compete with other students to see who's gonna be the most active by the end of the class, right? On the one hand, that's very motivational. On the other hand, it doesn't necessarily take into account different abilities, uh, different ways that those numbers might act as kind of stigmatizing or marginalizing to students who might just struggle with physical activity and might be really self-conscious about that, right? So it's using numbers as a motivational tool, yes, but also as a way for educators to more finely monitor the activities of students on a day-to-day basis and for students to monitor the activities with one another. Right? Mm. So we see again, this folding of a particular kind of logic into how technologies are used um, in coordination with daily practices. Another example of this um, is the, the Walt Disney World Magic Band, right? Which if people have gone to the Walt Disney World in the last, what, 8 years at this point I think you've probably been invited to purchase uh, a magic band which you can sync up to an application on your smartphone you can load fast passes onto it you can load your credit card onto it uh, it interfaces with all of these sensor stations around the Walt Disney World parks uh, in Orlando Florida and the idea here is you know smooth out your vacation Use this band to help your vacation run more smoothly. And it certainly does that, right? It allows you to, you know, rather than fumbling to keep track of those little paper fast pass tickets that I would get when I was a kid, the couple of times we went to Walt Disney World, you can load it onto the band. The band is RFID enabled. You have an individual identifying sensor in the band. You press it against a beacon and it lights up and says, great, your fast pass is activated. Welcome aboard. Go get in line. You can use it to buy souvenirs. You can use it to buy food. You can use it as a hotel key if you're staying in a Walt Disney World resort. Right? At the same time, that's generating... Anonymized reports to the data engineers who run Walt Disney World to understand the habits of populations. Right, so these are working more on the aggregate level of wanting to understand. You know what are Walt Disney patrons as a whole doing? But you know, ostensibly they can break it down by people visiting as a family, people visiting as you know a couple, um, someone who's just going to the park by themselves, and they can watch like over the course of a day. Do people start out at Space Mountain and move to Splash Mountain? When are people getting lunch? When is Main Street most crowded? How can we think about you know, implementing parades, staggering fast passes, creating more incentives to kind of bounce people around the park to spread out the people who are visiting? So this introduces more sort of infrastructural logistics where wearables become the means by which Disney can you know, make its infrastructure more efficient. Again, that's being done off of a trade-off. Right? We will make your vacation feel more seamless. You will give us data about your comings and goings so that we can understand your ride pattern, your purchasing habits, your walking pattern. We can learn more about the people who come in and out of this space. Hmm. Which was, for whatever it's worth, one of the reasons why Walt Disney World was founded. It's Epcot Center, and oh, geez, I'm gonna blank on the date. I'm going to all these dates on the podcast, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, all the dates are going out of my mind. But when Epcot was founded, it was founded under the the auspices of this can become a testing ground uh, for different sorts of uh, urban developers and civil engineers to come and try out different ways of designing uh, technology within city spaces. And the people who come to the park will be test subjects. Mm. Uh, Magic Band is another iteration of this. It's another version of sort of the promise that Disney can provide because we can take uh, or Disney can take, the data that they've been able to generate through the park and the ways they've been able to modulate the operations of the park and use that as a pitch to people who want to design more sensor-enabled urban spaces, um, the so-called smart city, right, where, you know, we, we see a drive among some urban planners and civic engineers to add computational sensors to, um, you know, accessing uh, subways or other public transportation, or using RFID sensors to monitor how people come and go from public buildings. Disney offers a prototype, uh, a diagram of what that could look like through its use of Magic Band. Right? Uh, there's you know plenty of examples that I can go into. Those, those are just two of them, but I, I use those two sort of as, as different ways to highlight how different sorts of institutions from you know, middle school gym classes to Walt, the Walt Disney Company, take an interest in wearable technologies as a way to learn about people and come to an understanding about what it is that people do, either to assign them a particular grade in a course, or as a way to say, like, this might be a viable way for people to think about redesigning urban spaces writ large, right? Uh, the implementation of wearable technologies in these more official capacities has stakes uh, that go well beyond, I think, sort of the the individual decision on, am I going to buy a Fitbit to help motivate me to go on a run? Right? That's an important decision for someone to make, the integration of a technological device into daily practice, to be sure. Um, but for me, where it gets thornier, trickier, and a lot more interesting is when we see... For instance, to kind of give another quick example, the John Hancock life insurance company offer people insurance policies based on whether or not they're willing to wear a Fitbit and seed that data back to John Hancock so that John Hancock can use their Fitbit data to offer them different premiums or rewards, right? Gathering data about a user pool uh, in, in exchange for something else as a way to build a standard as a way to say, this is what the population is doing. These are what particular people look like. And we are using these devices to learn about and make judgments about people which may guide further policy actions.
0: Mm. No, I love that you, I mean, there's so much there to unpack. But I think one thing especially I know you just mentioned the John Hancock scenario I'm even thinking about state farm insurance offering hey put this device on your vehicle we'll track your whereabouts and your driving habits and then we'll give you a discount perhaps on your you know your plan um and I'm I'm thinking about just how even going beyond these wearables, it's it's almost this moment of this is kind of the same pattern that's occurring in other spaces too. Like I think about, we've talked on the show about, you know, social media and the trade-off between, you know, here's me and my anonymity and I'm coming online and I'm, you know, performing my online identities at the same time, sell like I'm being sold essentially as as the product, as the commodity uh, for companies. And so I'm thinking too just about this Idea of almost they're learning about what people do while we're also learning about ourselves in this really interesting, kind of messy way, but it's definitely so intertwined. Um, so I appreciate how you've brought up all of these complexities, especially thinking too about minors and, yeah. you know, policies well, about that.
1: So I think it's important to highlight that this is, as you're pointing to, nothing new under the sun. It's a different iteration of it. It's in some ways an intensification of things that have existed. But I think you can draw pretty direct lines to things like, you know, Taylorism uh, in the early 20th century, the desire to monitor how workers conducted themselves on the job using stopwatches to measure worker efficiency. We can take this all the way back to the 1800s and studies of, you know, human motion and movement um, using early moving image cameras as a way to kind of gain a quote-unquote better understanding of what the human body does and can do. Um, This is kind of an a next wave, a next iteration, a trend, a paradigm, kind of whatever word you want to put on it. Um, but it is not something that just sort of emerged whole cloth in the 1990s and the 2000s. It is drawing on and intensifying um, existing trends and ideas that have been around for, you know, at least 100, if not closer to 200 years um, since kind of the, the real development of Recording and storage media in the 1800s.
0: You're listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us, we'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Dr. James Gilmore about wearable technologies. And I also love you highlight that because, again, this is what the show is about. Like we're talking about asking, you know, basically old questions about new tech, right? It's it's not necessarily this like brand new, here's a new invention. We've never seen this before. It's it's usually just continuing these iterations that have been existing for quite some time. So I appreciate you also highlighting that as well. And I also think, you know, kind of shifting more a little bit more broadly now Thinking about, you know, personal conversations I've experienced that I know probably listeners have experienced where you've heard people say variations of things like, you know, we don't really need all of these devices. Like back in my day, we didn't really use them and you know, it was so much better back then and, and whatnot. And I hear these, again, like quite frequently, I feel, um, and I understand the sentiment certainly um however for me as someone who you know did grow up watching all of this kind of emerge quite quite quickly um imagining life without these different devices or these technologies i rely on every day it seems really difficult to do and so i was kind of wondering you know building off of the conversation that we've we've had what in your opinion did we maybe lose in this technological expansion with these wearable devices but also you know, what did we gain? You know, there, there's obviously a lot you could, you know, potentially argue either way. So I was just wondering, what do you what do you think about about all of that? Yeah,
1: let's start with the the gains, then we'll go to the losses, right? That's That's how my mind works as a critical scholar. So, you know, as I sort of alluded to already, with a lot of the stuff that I've researched, I've worn it for a period of at least six weeks, in some instances, two to three years, and keeping notes about, what I did with it, how it made me feel, and I gained a lot through wearing a Fitbit for a year-long period. Right, it, it motivated me uh, or helped to motivate me to go outside and and move more. Uh, you know, I lost weight, I got in better shape uh, when I was wearing a Fitbit. And I don't want to say that that was reducible to the Fitbit. Fitbit was the deterministic thing that made me do that. Um, but it was, you know, sort of an agent that was playing a role. Um, The Apple Watch, similarly, that closing of the rings, right? It felt good to close the rings, uh, to kind of look at, you know, what is my heart rate doing? How am I, you know, moving through various sorts of workouts? What can I learn about my own being through doing that, right? Um, GoPros, as well, wearable cameras have been fun tools for me to play with to document parts of my life uh, in different sorts of ways. So, in terms of what we gain by doing this, you know, I, I think it it's hard to say that these things have not mattered to people and continue to matter to people. So, again, this is part of why my my critique moves away from thinking about individuals and things more about institutions, because there are so many things that people can get out of, you know, thinking about, you know, how can this help me build a better habit for myself? You know, we we saw when Fitbits were kind of first becoming popular in the early 2010s, kind of a statistic that people would repeat over and over and over again was 50% of users stopped wearing them after eight weeks. Right? I think that's changed since Apple Watch came around and that's more sort of a luxury brand item and same thing with AirPods. They're more kind of, you know, they're kind of luxury consumer items that that people want to hold on to for a while. But, you know, for a Fitbit, a lot of people would stop wearing them after six to eight weeks. People say, well, why is that? Well, because people buy them as a way to help develop a habit. And after a time, they have developed the habit, they've developed an understanding of themselves, and they no longer feel like they need the, te- the technical proxy to help motivate them, to help them understand that habit, what have you, right? So if we want to think about, like, how do we keep these uh, these more per- potentially insidious aspects of wearable technologies at bay, well, let's think about what can they motivate us to do? What do we get out of using them? And is that worth it, right? For a lot of us. The answer is yes. It is worth it. I really like wearing my AirPods. Uh, they are. Uh, I don't have wires tripping me up as I walk around, and that may be a very small thing in the grand scheme of things, but I find it overall very useful. Right? And the AirPods do a number of other things that I that I think are really kind of potentially beneficial with assistive hearing and amplification, and um, you know all of these other things. What do we lose though, right? This is where things get a little tricky because the way that I've sort of seen it and the nearly decade that I've been working on this stuff is that wearables are one part of a much larger, uh, I, I call it a battle uh, because I, I like dramatic metaphors, right? But we could think about sort of rearticulations, conflicts, conflicts, um, you no, know, a struggle over what our everyday life looks like and an encroachment of all manner of datification devices into everyday life. Wearables are just one of these things. Smartphones are others. We can think about the doorbell cameras that Amazon produces. We can think about the smart home devices that companies like Samsung and Amazon produce. Um, all of these things that are gathering data about how we come and go, how we set the thermostat, who's coming to our door, how are we moving around, where are we going, what distance do we travel, how many steps do we take, what's our average heart rate. There's this sort of larger impulse to document and to record everything that we do in our lives. Right? There's a, there was a movement in the early 2000s that called this life logging. Right, this version of taking pictures and videos uh, and generating data about everything that you do every day so that your entire life, there'd be a record of everything that you did and and you would be a fully recorded individual. And the folks who propagated this idea were by and large utopic about it. This idea that, you know, we could really achieve This dream of mediating our whole lives and having a whole record of our existence to to pass on to our loved ones so they could look back and see what we did and remember us and yada, yada, yada. We could look back and remember what we were doing on a particular day. And, you know, there is something that's quite nice about that. To go back and see a photograph from any given day, right? To see a video from any given day. At the same time, this is not what everyday life looked like. Until, you know, really 150 years ago, did we begin to have the capacity to start really documenting and recording daily life. And, you know, as early as the post-World War II period, we see social theorists like Henri Lefebvre, someone whose work I've really been inspired by. He wrote a lot about everyday life, and he was very worried in the post-war period into the 1960s about this kind of increasing bureaucratization of daily life, this kind of increasing imposition of rationality onto daily life. And in many ways, sort of the computation and datification of daily life in which wearables participate is, you know, another version of this thing um, you know, that Lefebvre was so controlled about, was so worried about. He called it the, the bureaucratic society of controlled consumption. That was the name that he gave it in his book, Everyday Life in the Modern World. And, you know, we can think about how, you know, wearables, as I sort of mentioned a while ago, you know, when they were first being promoted and imagined in the public view, is this idea that they can bring some order to daily life. Well, what does that order look like 20 years later? It's this ongoing call to keep gathering data and storing data about everything that you do, right? Have terabytes and terabytes worth of data about what you do, about what your workers do, about what your theme park patrons do. Just keep gathering the data. And the more data you get, the more you're going to know. And, you know, that may be true to a point, but... What do we do with that knowledge? What does that knowledge do to the way that we think about our daily lives? Right. So, for better or for worse, you know, there there are likely people listening to the podcast right now who think, yes, that's great. I datafication adds a lot to what we can do with daily life. And okay, that's one of I think the um, foundational debates that will structure the next ten to twenty years is what do we do with datafication. And is datification worth it? Over the last 15 years, we have seen an ongoing ramping up of data collection, data analytics, this desire to gather things at scales and at depth that was previously not thought possible. And we keep getting more and more of it all the time and wearables are one part of this battleground. So where do we go from here And how does it impact the way that we think about our everyday habits and our everyday practices, right? Are we willing to seed data about our daily practices in exchange for whatever Google, Samsung, Amazon, Apple are offering at that given time? That's a a a kind of social contract, a techno-social contract between us and these companies and manufacturers, um, between us and our employers, Various companies, schools, even governments, Mm -hmm. who want to monitor and collect data to do various sorts of things to understand human populations, uh, or to claim to understand human populations at the very least, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That—that's what I mean when I say we are—we are witnessing a battle for everyday life. We are in Mm -hmm. the middle of this kind of struggle over what is the role of computation and the role of data and its relationship to daily habit and practice, to learn more about humans. And we should be cautious of that. We should take that into consideration. We should push back on data collection. We should insist on data privacy and data ownership because it is exploitative.
0: No, I think that that is a fantastic note to even end on is this final charge of like, Do more. Let's push back. Let's try to, you know, advocate for more transparency, um, more, I guess, clarity even about what's actually going on. Because how can you ever fix things if you don't actually know there's a problem, right? So I I definitely appreciate that you've highlighted this here at the end. And I think this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you sharing uh, your knowledge, your experiences and your research with all of us today. So thank you so much, Dr. Gilmore.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Bailey. It was uh, it was a real pleasure to talk with you uh, about this stuff, and I hope your listeners enjoyed it as well.
0: You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Dr. James Gilmore. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Gilmore's work, visit James ngilmore.com gilmore.com slash and be looking for the upcoming special issue of cultural studies. I'm Bailey Troutman, today's host of Looks Like New, a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show and consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Leaving positive reviews will help our conversations reach more listeners. We would love to hear your comments or guest ideas, and you can reach us by emailing medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us for another conversation next month.